Hello and welcome to the Rethinking ADHD podcast. My name is Simon Mundy and I am your host. It is clear that ADHD is being talked about much more than ever before. We're hearing about increasing numbers of celebrities and high-profile people being diagnosed, often well into adulthood. But despite the increase in awareness of ADHD, there are still significant misconceptions about what it is, as well as the impact it can have on people's lives and what you can do about it. So this series aims to explore what ADHD is and how it presents itself, challenge some myths and misconceptions about it and outline ways to manage the condition and thrive with it. I'll be speaking to athletes, entrepreneurs, authors, doctors and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist to hear about their experiences and find out how they learn to flourish while living with ADHD. I'm hosting this series on behalf of QB Tech, who are the leading provider of FDA-cleared objective ADHD tests. In this episode, I am talking to Anna Brasile, who's been working closely to support ADHD patients over the last decade, to tap into her extensive knowledge about its core characteristics, as well as how the cultural view of ADHD has evolved over recent years. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Anna, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Simon. How are you? I'm good. Delighted to see you. Excited about the prospect of speaking to you and digging into this fascinating area, which, as you know, is something that I've become even more interested in for reasons I'm sure we'll come to. But I think we'll dive straight in, shall we? We're talking about ADHD. So the most obvious, the most basic question that we want to answer is what, in a nutshell, is ADHD? Yeah. So in its most simplest view, it's a neurodevelopmental condition. It's comprised of three core symptoms, uh, but those symptoms affect everybody's day-to-day executive functioning. So the ability to organize and maintain a structural flow within your day, both kids and adults, but it typically presents in childhood. Okay, that's a really good overview. So you talk about it in terms of being a condition, and obviously the word that gets used a lot is disorder. What do you think of that language? I have a mixed view about it because I have seen the struggles that people with ADHD have. On a day-to-day basis, it is not something easy to live your life with if you don't have support simply. I like to use the word condition because I also think that it can be a positive thing in one's life. And so I think that disorder is something that we've used because it's been around in the terminology for decades, but I do think it doesn't show the full picture of what ADHD truly is. There are so many people, aren't there, who have risen above the struggles, shall we say, that are a part of having ADHD in the world as we currently know it and turned it to their advantage. And on that basis, it can't be defined definitively as something that is going to hold everyone back. And it doesn't have to for anyone that has it. With the right diagnosis and the right treatment, you can absolutely thrive with ADHD. It's just a matter of finding the provider and the care system that works for you. And that testing is key. And we're going to come to that. But you spoke earlier about these three core symptoms. So just remind us what they are. Yeah. So the three core symptoms of ADHD are inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. Okay. Now, it might seem that those words are easy to understand. And I may have used words like that in conversation. Yet when I sat down and actually thought, okay, what does this word mean? 
I realized that actually my understanding was a little bit vague and I'm sure that I'm not alone in that. So let's dig into each one a bit and think about what this looks like in real life. Let's start with inattention. So if you had to explain what that is to someone like me who's hazy in their thinking, what would you say? The way I like to look at inattention is really more of a difficulty sustaining focus on particular things, not all things. That's the trick with ADHD is that if you enjoy a topic, you can actually pay attention very well and actually better than most people. They're terming that hyper-focus. But the issue is in things that are not rewarding or interesting to an individual with ADHD, it is very difficult to stay focused on that particular topic. So your mind is wandering elsewhere to more exciting or interesting thoughts than what's going on necessarily right in front of you. So there's essentially two sides to that inattention then. You've got what can be a blessing if you find something you're really passionate about, if you're really interested in this ability to hyperfocus and Again, just to bring it back to me, if that's okay, I grew up with a fascination and a love for tennis, and it's ended up being a beneficial thing in terms of how my career's panned out. Yet, at the same time, those other subjects at school, non-tennis related, which is pretty much all of them, as you say, if I wasn't interested, bang, I would just be off. So there are pros and cons even within this bracket of inattention. Yeah, absolutely. So even... In the context of hyperfocus, you can be so hyperfocused on something and it negatively affects you. Even though in the end, that hyperfocus might make you an expert in that field, all of the things that were going on around you while you were becoming that expert were neglected. And so while hyperfocus is great if you can hone it in and you have some support system there to redirect you when it is time to disengage with that activity, and focus on something else that's more important. So for example, your schoolwork, if you are still in school, if you are an adult, just tending to your day-to-day -day things like bills, chores, all of the things that are maybe not as fun as the topic that you're becoming an expert in. Or even self-care, things like this. You could get so obsessed, whether it be at a sport or in a business and an entrepreneurial avenue, fantastic, do really well, but you're missing out these potentially other areas. Right. It can affect social relationships, not just school. We historically have thought of ADHD as a problem for school-aged children, but we see it affect one's life as they go on to be adults and, frankly, for the entirety of their life. And obviously, let's say in the schooling system in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in America, we all have to do so many subjects and they're done in a particular way. So if someone who has the ADHD condition is not able to find something that they're really passionate about within those parameters, how much of a struggle can that be? An extreme struggle, and particularly when their symptoms are more subtle. We often see this in female populations or people whose symptoms are predominantly inattentive because they are less obvious than some of the stereotypical symptoms of ADHD. And so you can sit there in a classroom and struggle silently, and educators will often just think you're a poor student. And sometimes even parents will think that as well, when in reality, we know that had they had the right diagnosis and thus the right supports, they could have thrived in that school system and learned that they really love math 
or that they really love science and found a new field in science that they wanted to become an expert in. But if you're not given that opportunity and the support that's needed to get there, a lot of folks struggle. So without a diagnosis, without support, very easy then to internalize this message that you'll be getting from some parts from people who don't get it, that there's something a bit wrong with you. Perhaps you're not clever. You're not paying attention in the way you should be. It's a character flaw. Right. And it's so sad because a lot of that is stigma that's based on historical thoughts about ADHD. We had really framed the condition as the hyperactive little boy, the boy who gets in trouble in class. And so if you don't fit that mold, for many, many years, people were being missed. And so we are seeing a surge of adults who are finally getting that recognition because our care systems in the 80s and the 90s didn't know any better. And unfortunately, not all of our medical um, educational programs have focused on improving that education around ADHD. There's still a lack of training in medical and mental health fields in that condition particularly. So much of the information that you see is out of modern research. So if you're staying up to date on that, great. And you can obviously learn as you continue to provide care for people. But that's kind of why we've been left in this stigmatized area of ADHD is that we didn't know any better, but now we do. And we're seeing a major push from both patients and providers to really modernize the way that we look at ADHD, diagnose it, and treat it. Moving on to impulsivity. Now, this is something that really rings true. In our house, I would say that my wife and our little girl, they're the more likely to buy chocolate. But once it's in the house, I'm the one who will finish it in one sitting. Now, that seems like a simplistic way of putting it. But how would you explain what that is with perhaps a little bit of a clearer, more objective overview of this impulsivity element? Well, that's a great example of how impulsivity might manifest in you. For kids in school, that's starting an assignment but not reading the instructions. That's answering a question before the question has even finished, blurting out in class. But in the workforce, that's also not following the instructions from your manager. It is not remembering to do certain things because you are so impulsively focused on something else. So I think that inattention and focus often have really close ties that your impulsive brain will drive you to go do the thing that's more interesting than focus on the task at work that you're supposed to be doing. On the bright side, though, it also makes you really good at making split decisions. So folks that work in the ER or the emergency system, healthcare system, sports athletes, they're really good at making those on-the-spot decisions where folks that are neurotypical might need a little bit more time. And once you've taken that time, you've lost that opportunity. And so while I think of impulsivity as it can be really detrimental, you can also use it to your benefit. This is a theme that's going to come up again and again, I think, isn't it? This pros and cons, yeah. blessing and curse for one of a better word. And just on this one quickly, this impulsive element, obviously we live in a time when distractions are so much more rife than they were 10 years ago. 20 years ago, it's a completely different game altogether with social media, with rolling news, all this stuff, which 
is only going to make it harder for people with ADHD who struggle with their impulsivity. Right. And from the clinician's perspective, it also makes it hard to know, is this genuine struggle because you have ADHD and you're impulsive? Or are you being pulled in multiple different ways because the notifications from your phone, from your computer, your gaming devices over there, and all of that stuff can be really distracting. And of course, as humans, we're naturally going to go to the things that are fun and engaging. For folks with ADHD, it's even more challenging. And so as a clinician, it can be really hard to tease out, especially now that there's so much technology in our day-to-day life. Is this genuinely ADHD? Or is this someone who just needs a little bit more structure in their environment? So how much of a challenge is that then to differentiate between the two? Incredibly challenging if you don't have tools to measure it. So historically, the way that we've diagnosed ADHD is based off of subjective methods. So a clinical interview to gather some historical data, hopefully get some data from family members or anyone in their social sphere, and rating scales. And typically, especially for adults, that's a self-rating scale. For kids, it might be parentals or guardians and teachers. And all of those methods are subjective. They are prone to bias. And I think that's also contributed to the uh, stereotypes that we've developed over time. So while that information is good to have, it's good to know how one feels about their self, how a parent or a teacher feels about a child, their feelings. They're not measurements of behavior. And so that's really where QB Tech takes a stance. We're not here to replace those tools. I think it's an important piece of the evaluation. But historically, without them, we've left a major subset of the ADHD population without care. And so using objective data to measure those symptoms and reveal severity and patterns that we would expect with ADHD is a much better path to getting those folks the recognition and the care that they need. This objective way of checking then for these symptoms, is it fair to say then that it would weed out some people who might self-report subjectively as having ADHD on the basis of the way that we live our lives in the way we've already described in terms of social media, in terms of screens, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So it is unbiased. It, It is not influenced by one's opinions, by what they've seen on the internet, by even their day to day struggles that aren't related to ADHD. So I think that objective data is really important. We saw a much more significant push toward objective data when COVID hit. We had to completely change our healthcare system and the way we saw patients. Also, as individuals ourselves, our entire worlds were changed. We went from having a highly structured environment, whether you were a student going to school every day or an adult going to work every day. All of that structure is removed and that can make anyone, whether you have ADHD or not, feel like they're having difficulties staying focused. That led people to just talk about it online and to get curious and build communities. And so that's really where we saw from QB Tech's perspective, a push for people seeking out that kind of data, both clinicians and patients. And I think that that also sprung kind of what we see around the social media aspects. People were taking to social media platforms to post about their personal experiences, learning that they had ADHD because of COVID. 
and just sharing that and building support systems online. That's really interesting. And I want to dig a bit more into that in just a moment, but we've still got to just give a little bit of a take on this final of the three core symptoms, hyperactivity. For me, the thing that comes to mind is talking too much, speaking from experience here, and that desire or that perhaps sometimes even inability to know when to stop speaking. But I'm sure there's more to it than that. Yeah, and I think of verbal hyperactivity as very much tied to the impulsivity aspect. And so just, I got to get out what I have to say, because it's really important on my mind. And if I don't get it out, it will bother me. Um, And so that's kind of where I see that. When I think about hyperactivity, of course, we've got that stereotype of the hyperactive little boy. He's out of his seat. He's, you know, bugging his friends next to him. And all of that is present in ADHD. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of those little boys out there. But as many of those little boys out there, there are as many individuals who have much more subtle versions of hyperactivity. So I like to think of uh, leg bouncing, super common one that we see all the time with ADHD, but that is really typical. Fidgeting, tapping, any kind of small movement, even just shifting in your seat a lot. And so when I think of hyperactivity, especially as our patients are getting a little bit older, That's what I'm typically looking for. But it's subtle. And so it's really hard to see because we're humans. So it's like you need something to measure it. And that is really where objective testing comes in hand with QB Tech as well. So we measure millimeters of movement and we compare that to someone's age and sex matched norm group. Because we know that once hyperactivity changes as they grow older, And they're very different presentations typically between the two sexes. So that's, I think of hyperactivity as, again, I'm going to go back to this positives and negatives. Yes, it can get you in trouble in school. It might bother your peers if you're sitting on a bench and you're shaking the whole bench with your leg. But in the same respect, it also makes athletes really good at what they do. And you can, again, use it to your benefit. So I think of every core symptom of ADHD as having both sides of the scale. And you just got to find a way to make your environment work for both sides. Seeing it in these terms of pros and cons, I think is so valuable. And I find that fascinating what you just said there about hyperactivity, because to talk about it in such subtle terms, that opens the floodgates in terms of what could be bracketed under something that is easily stereotyped in the way that you've already described and it is and it's subtle but also we have to keep in mind that even though it's quite subtle for some people it impairs their day-to-day all day so that's one thing about social media is that people went out they started creating content about their personal experiences and people resonated with that even if they didn't have adhd because that's only one side of the picture. These anecdotes that we experience, a a lot of the examples that even I've thrown out, taken out of context can make a lot of people feel like they have ADHD. But what we really need to focus on is how often and how much it is impairing their everyday life. So part of the diagnostic criteria of ADHD is that it has to affect you in more than one area of your life. So it's gotta be school and social or 
work and social relationships or you know, any kind of mix of environment. And that part isn't necessarily portrayed on social media. And so it, it set up a lot of expectation in patients seeing all this content that they resonate with. And then they seek out an evaluation. And a lot of times they're left with a disappointment. And I've seen that when you have objective data to show why that condition was ruled out, it's much more digestible and it's easier to understand, okay, but I'm still feeling some impairment. So what else could it be? I think that it's important to understand that ADHD isn't just anecdotal, funny things. For a lot of people, it creates significant struggle and on a daily basis. Okay. Let me just ask about the stereotype once more, though. Let's go back to the original one, shall we say? The hyperactive, inattentive, young boy bouncing around that kind of thing, or even any of the stereotypes I've mentioned, perhaps the sort of simplified versions of the stuff you've been talking about. How damaging are they? Extremely. They have held people back for decades on getting the recognition and the care that they need. It's an antiquated view of looking at ADHD, and it leaves that kid in the back of the classroom who's struggling silently left to just struggle. And that's the problem with the stereotypes and the fact that they are still so prevalent. Uh, even though we've got research to show that that's not the only way it can look. Uh, it's left so many people without a diagnosis. And again, that's why we're seeing such an uptick in adults looking for an assessment for ADHD because they were that kid in the back of the classroom that silently struggled, whose mind was thinking about other things because the teacher, frankly, wasn't making it super interesting, but they weren't hyperactive and a nuisance. They weren't bothering their peers. They weren't out of their desk. And therefore, they got lost. There must just be huge swathes of people like that. A lot of it. A lot of it. And I will say that I think that's been a slow increase over time. But COVID absolutely launched it into more frequency. Uh, but we've been understanding that adults, too, have ADHD for quite a while. It was historically thought of as, oh, you'll grow out of it. We know that that's not true, that for the vast majority of people with ADHD, they will still have symptoms into their adulthood. Luckily, if you've got some good support systems throughout your development, you can learn to work with those symptoms and maybe don't need the same level of treatment you did as a child, but the symptoms are still there. And I think that's one of the things that's contributed to people thinking that it's a disorder for kids only. Yeah. We've touched on how many people can slip through the net then and the importance of objective testing what a difference it can make am i right in saying that the way things like or a mental health condition like adhd is treated just hasn't been updated and evolved in the same way that other conditions physical conditions for example have been absolutely so even though we have just as much research into ADHD as we do many other mental health disorders and physical health disorders, we've stagnated. So in the past 30 years, we're still treating ADHD essentially the same way that we have for three decades. And that's just 
not up to par with the current research. I will say that, you know, our healthcare system has contributed a lot to that, but both patients and providers are seeking to modernize this system. They've seen the flaws. They've seen how it does not result in patients getting better. And it's time for a change. And you've spoken about social media and COVID and how that brought a lot of neurodiversity out of the shadows. You have seen this huge uptake and increase in interest and just coverage. So that's seems to me to be a positive to come from that. But what is the biggest downside, though, as we've seen this increase in in interest, in coverage, in people sharing their symptoms and and that kind of thing? Because you keep talking about there are pros and cons. What's the con? Yeah, I know. I like to stay positive, but there are some downsides. There truly are. So it's resulted in a flood of patients seeking evaluation. Our healthcare system is significantly understaffed, and particularly when we are looking at people who are experts in ADHD, they're few and far between. And so it has created an extra burden on our healthcare system that's not equipped to handle it. I think that as a result of that burden, a lot of providers are seeking out objective data to make the process more clear and to make sure that they are getting the right patients on the right treatment. It's been a struggle, but I think that even this downside will eventually be an upside. The more objective data that we can have into our evaluations, the better care that we're providing, and thus the better results for our patients in making their lives less of a struggle and more of a bright and beautiful way of living. Well, listen, I love your optimism, by the way, Anna, and it's contagious, but I was lucky in that I did the test. And it completely shone a light in a way that I had just been overlooking. But at the same time, after speaking to my wife about it, we thought, okay, it's still important to speak to my doctor to get that ball rolling. And so I've done that. And I've immediately become very conscious of how slow the whole experience is. Now, as far as I'm concerned, having done the objective test, it's given me so much information that have already made such a difference but it's also shown me how slow the system as it currently is is and frankly that feels for people who perhaps aren't as fortunate as as someone like me it feels tragic absolutely and i think that the healthcare system where you are has a very different concern around adhd than the healthcare system in the u.s what i know about the UK and their healthcare system is that it does take a really, really long time. On the bright side, they do often incorporate objective data into their assessment. So while using those tools has helped them speed up the path and reduce the number of appointments to a diagnosis with objective testing, we've still got a long way to go over there. Now, back over on our side of the pond, uh, we have almost an opposite issue. While we've got a ton of patients that need care, a lot of the assessments are done suboptimally. So without objective data, someone can come in and look very much like ADHD and just go ahead and get that diagnosis with subjective measures. If a clinician doesn't feel comfortable diagnosing ADHD in their own office, they will often refer out for an evaluation with a psychologist or a neuropsychologist. 
that is where we're hit with long wait lists that are incredibly impairing for a patient. If you realize that you have ADHD, you go to your primary care physician and then they refer you out, you're sitting on a six-month, nine-month long wait list. The assessments for those types of clinicians take many, many hours. And by then, you've struggled for months. And all of the, especially when I think about kids, all of the opportunities to learn and to better your life have been held back in that time period. So I truly think that in the healthcare system in general, we should be streamlining these pathways, but also standardizing them so that everybody has access to objective data so that we can all get to care much, much faster and efficient than our slowest turtle or antiquated ways of doing things right now. That word standardizing is so important, isn't it? Because I imagine you could go and see two, three people and get completely different diagnoses. So really, as you say, having something that is going to treat everyone the same, isn't bringing their own personal biases to bear, sounds absolutely fundamental. Right. Exactly. Because the reason we see if you go to three different providers, you can often get multiple different diagnoses is because they're all using different methods to assess. So one might use this type of rating scale, one might use uh, this type of rating scale and an objective test. One might say, oh, I don't need the rating scale because I've got enough data from your records. All three of those methods are so very different that it's really hard to say which one is right. Who's to know? But when you have objective data, you are removing a lot of that bias. And I think that it just should be standard of care. I think that our healthcare system is seeing more of that, more of a push from the people who assess for ADHD on a day-to-day basis. And also patients. You have the experience and you understand what it's like to get that validation, to finally get that understanding and have those light bulb moments from your life that, okay, that makes sense why I experienced it in that way. Last couple of things, Anna. Just speaking again from my own experience. So when I when I got my results through having done the test and I sat with them for a while and I was surprised at the emotional stages I went through. I had a period of grief. I never would have anticipated that. I had a period of quite a high period, I would say. Part of that was relief. And then through to acceptance. It was almost like the five stages of grief that you hear about. That's me. I don't know how anyone else goes through, but you obviously are working right in the middle of this. How common are those kind of emotional reactions to finding out what's really going on? I have heard people say it's the stages of ADHD grief in which you kind of mourn your past self that was missed and all those opportunities where you feel like you could have thrived had you known and had you had the right support. And then we're going to flip over to the positive side again. Also very hopeful for the future and knowing, okay, well, this is where I struggle, but I can also make it a positive. And if I have the right supports, it won't be so much of a struggle anymore. So yeah, I mean, it's a common feeling to, especially for adults who have been missed for decades of our lives, to feel upset about that past self. 
but having that validation is the step toward making your life even better than it is today. I've got to admit, actually, just talking about that, I felt a little emotional as we spoke through that bit there. And it's important that we finish on a high. Because I think getting an objective diagnosis and being able to move forward from that is a positive thing. And there are so many people out there who have been able to thrive from this. And I think giving those examples can help so many people. Can you just talk a little bit to this about perhaps even some of the people, and we're going to talk to more in the series, so we're going to be able to do a lot more of a deep dive on an individual basis, but can you just give us some a bit of an overview about this so we can finish on a nice, hopeful, upbeat ending, please, Anna? Yes. You can thrive with your ADHD, and there are so many examples of that in very successful people all around the world. We see this a lot in athletes. We see this a lot in innovators, in entrepreneurs, in people in high-stakes fields. So they have learned to use their symptoms to their advantage, and I think that that is something that really should be focused on for each person who receives that diagnosis. Know that you have a way to use those symptoms to your benefit. Just get that diagnosis right, and then you can support your life to truly thrive with ADHD. And as I said, we're going to be chatting to some really remarkable people who have thrived, but this has been a fantastic place to start. I feel like I've learned a lot. Have you got any final thoughts before we go, Anna? Yeah, I have lots of personal connections with ADHD. I've seen the pathway go right. I've seen it go wrong. Know that if you think you have ADHD, seek out a provider who is well-versed in the condition, that uses objective data, and know that this is the first step to skyrocketing your future and to success. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rethinking ADHD podcast. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media or head to the QB Tech website. The links are in the show notes. In the next episode, I'm speaking to one of England's best known sportsmen of the last decade, the former England international rugby player turned broadcaster, DJ and reality TV star James Haskell. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.